Pastor Darren's text this morning is John 12, 12 through 26. If you have your Bibles, please open them and follow along with me as I read. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Sharon. Church, let's pray as we get started. Father, we come before you this morning and we desire to meet with you. We desire to know you deeper, to build our relationship with you. God, we ask that your spirit would be made known in this room, that we would be given ears and eyes to hear and see the word that you have given to us. In your name we pray, amen. So church, today we celebrate Palm Sunday, and it's a glorious day where we usually, um, if it were not a COVID world, would be um, handing out palms often to kids, and we would wave them and bring in our king, Jesus. He's the king of our world, he is the king of our hearts, and he's done an amazing thing for us. Amen? Amen. So um, a palm branch has special significance, which we will get to later, but for now, that's going over here. You've heard it said... Jesus died for your sins, and if you believe this, you will inherit eternal life. So this is true. This is the gospel. If I would, if I would take a poll of all of you out here and watching at home or in online, you would probably say that is the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, we can live in that, and then he raises us new life, just as our new mission statement and vision statement says. What I want to do today, though, is scratch a little bit deeper in the surface of the gospel. Because those five words, Jesus died for your sins, in my view, is probably the most simple you can say, but it's also almost a disservice to the 2,000 years that the Bible spans and the thousands of pages that have been written 
for Jesus and for what he has done and for what God has done for us. And it's a disservice to just reduce it down to that. So here's the big question that I want to look at today in the context of Palm Sunday. And the question is, what does the death of Jesus accomplish for you and for me? That's the big question. And to answer it, we're going to look at the Gospel of John. Thanks again, Sharon, for reading that passage. And John is going to tell us the reason, or a reason, one of the biggest reasons that Jesus, that Jesus died well before he actually dies in the story. Jesus dies in John chapter 19, and yet we hear a prophecy about Jesus' death here in chapters 11 and 12. And so we're going to look at that story and figure out what the death of Jesus accomplishes for us. Before we get there, um, we need some context. Uh, I'm a big Old Testament buff, and I love understanding what the Jewish nation is experiencing, and I think it's really, really important for us to understand what the palm branch means, what Jesus is doing, and what's going on. So there is a massive amount of political unrest in Jerusalem during the triumphal entry. Jesus, the crowds, and the religious leaders all want different things. So the crowd wants Jesus to come and push out the nation of Rome so that they can be their own nation again. And they won't be oppressed by the Romans who would tax them outrageously, who would beat them in the streets. Roman soldiers would take advantage of them as well. They wanted Jesus to be their warrior king, and they wanted him to lead a revolution, to get the Romans out of here. That's what the crowd that shouts Hosanna wants here. Now, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they wouldn't mind that, However, they know that if there was an armed uprising, a revolution, that Rome is so vast and so powerful that they would just get squished under their thumb. It would be so insignificant, a rebellion, it would be squashed out very, very quickly. And probably a lot of Israelites would die, and then they wouldn't be able to live in the land and, and, and worship at the temple. They wouldn't be able to practice their religion anymore because their religion is what caused the uprising. So the Pharisees really want peace. They want to maintain the status quo between themselves, the ruling people of Israel, and then the Roman soldiers and the Roman government. Now Jesus, he knows what he's there to do. He's heading toward the cross. And we know, at least John assumes that we know, that Jesus does die and that the Pharisees and the religious leaders actually win. What they want kind of happens. So even though they want world peace, they're, they're trying to kill a man to accomplish that. So they're not necessarily the good guys in this case. And what they do, the Pharisees come together and they kind of have a powwow and a council and they end up making an ironic prophecy about Jesus. And we see this in John chapter 11, verse 50. Here is their ironic prophecy that does come true in a certain way. You do not realize that it is better for you, and he's talking to the rest of the council, that's the high priest talking to them, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than a whole nation perish. So their prophecy is they want to kill Jesus so the Jewish nation can continue and their religion can continue. But the thing is, Jesus actually does die for the nation and for the whole world. So that's an ironic prophecy that comes out of the Pharisees' mouth. So there's something intriguing going on here. In John chapter 11, at the beginning, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and that created a crazy political frenzy. And Jesus clearly has power over death. 
So if Jesus has power over death, then why does he have to die? So, and John tells us that. So the question, again, if Jesus is going to die, I ask you, what does the death of Jesus accomplish for you and for me? Right after this, then, is the story where Mary takes a jar of, of perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet. And the context of this is anointing. He's anointing Jesus for his burial. And he actually says that in verse 7. But this anointing is also supposed to stir up in our heads an entire backstory. And we're supposed to think from the book of Samuel, where Samuel goes and he anoints Saul to become king. And he anoints David to become king. So Jesus is anointed for his burial and to be king. Jesus' kingship is the focus of the story of the triumphal entry. So the powder keg is set to blow. The crowd wants a warrior king, but the Pharisees do not want to have this revolution happen, and they, they start making schemes and plans to kill Jesus. And again, John assumes you know who's going to win. The Pharisees are going to win because they're going to kill Jesus. And so John eventually will tell us what Jesus' death means. But this story is a huge part of that answer. So let's stop for a minute and imagine, put ourselves a little bit in this story. Imagine you are in Boston, 1773, very close to the American Revolution. And in December of that time is the Boston Tea Party. So what happens is glorious King George across the pond has put a tax on your drink of choice, which is tea. For a lot of us, it's probably coffee. So instead of paying $4 for your coffee, now you're going to have to pay 6 And $2 every single time you drink coffee goes to King George across the pond. How dare he tax us over here for his wars over there? That's not what you want. So you're like, this, this hasn't been the first time that this has happened, right? So it's kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. And so you go get your buddies together. You go to the pub. You go to public spaces, start talking about it. We need to do something. King George needs to pay. And you hear that something actually is happening down at the harbor. So you gather your buddies. You go down to the harbor. And as you come close to it, you see this massive crowd. And they're angry, they're chanting, they're throwing their rotten fruit up at the soldiers that are guarding the entrance to the harbor. It's as if someone's waiting for someone else to do something, because you don't really want to be the one that starts it, but you would gladly participate in something that happened. And all of a sudden, someone does it. A group of people sprint and break from the crowd, they overwhelm the guards, and the dam breaks loose, and the Boston Tea Party happens. You make the Boston Harbor the biggest cup of tea in the world, because you just toss it in there. Take that, King George. This is the powder keg that was set to blow at the triumphal entry. The crowds were waiting for someone, that man was Jesus, to give them the signal to revolt and go for it and push Rome out. This is the context of the triumphal entry. So in verse 12 of John chapter 12, we read, The next day, the great crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Let's go. Jesus is here. So the feast that's happening is Passover. And Passover is the most important uh, Jewish festival because it celebrated the exodus from Egypt when God saved them um, through no power of their own from the hands of the Egyptians when they were in slavery. And so there were tons of sacrifices at the temple. Uh, You ate lambs. You had uh, unleavened bread that you ate. And there was tons of feasting. And there was also a huge population boom. Um, some 
scholars estimate that there were over two million people who descended on Jerusalem for this pilgrimage, because that's what you needed to do to be a good Jew, is to go to Jerusalem for these feasts. And even if that is um, overestimated, imagine if it was just one million, cut that number in half, that's still a ton of people that would overwhelm the guest services that were there in Jerusalem. And so what they would do, they knew this, they'd bring their camping gear, they'd get set up somewhere around Jerusalem on the countryside. And so the triumphal entry began well outside of Jerusalem, because there were crowds everywhere. In John 11, uh, verse 18, uh, John provides some geographical information for us, and we see that Bethany, where the whole thing with Lazarus and, and Martha happened, and Mary, is less than two miles from Jerusalem. So that green route up there is the triumphal entry. That's about two miles into the town of Jerusalem. So news of a resurrection in Bethany, of Lazarus being raised from the dead, would have reached Jerusalem very quickly, within hours. And not only would the people all along the road know it, but the Pharisees and the religious leaders know about it. So stuff is happening. When Jesus begins his procession into Jerusalem... The crowds are right there all along the road, and this is what happens when they go out to meet him, shouting in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. Now this quotation that the crowd is shouting is from a psalm, Psalm 118, and verse 25 has the Hebrew word Hosheana in it, which is where we get Hosanna, and it means Yahweh, please save us. That's what Hosanna means, please save us. Save us now. And the psalm goes on in that verse, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But what happens next is a departure from the meaning of the psalm. They say, Blessed is the king of Israel. That's not in Psalm 118 around the verse that says, Hosheana. It was a messianic reinterpretation of that phrase. The, crowd, the crowds were trying to force Jesus to be their king and to let them know it's time to revolt. The thing was, Jesus meant to be their king, the king of the world, the king of our hearts, but the crowds were greeting a national liberator in their minds. Now, Jesus did everything he could to try and subdue the crowds and stop this from happening, because this was not the kind of king that he wanted. Jesus chose to ride a donkey. We read in verse 14 that Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, and then he quotes a verse from Zechariah. Riding a donkey means that he was not riding a horse. A horse is a weapon of war. Horses can carry soldiers. Horses can pull chariots with archers and extra soldiers in them. They were weapons of war. But a donkey is a humble beast of burden. It plows your fields. It carries your stuff from one place to another. And that is the kind of king that Jesus wanted to be. So I'd like to read Zechariah 9, verses 9 and then 10. Whenever we see a, an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, I highly encourage you to go back and read it because there's always extra context that goes along with it that really richens, enriches the, the scripture. So here it is. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem, by the way. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now notice what happens next. He talks about the, those war horses. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace 
to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus came to Jerusalem that day to bring life, not war, but peace. He's trying, by riding the donkey, he's trying to tell the crowd, this is not why I am here. But they ignore it. They don't care. And as this is happening, the Pharisees are so nervous and worried in the background that this revolution is going to happen, and they make more plans to kill him as well. So after this, Jesus makes his intentions known. He's going to die, and his death is going to mean something. So remember our big question, what does the death of Jesus accomplish for you and for me? And the answer that the Gospel of John is about to give us in the next section we're going to read, I'm going to say it, and then we can see it in the text. It is only through the death of Jesus, it's only through Jesus' death that our life can prosper. It's only through the death of Jesus that our life can prosper. So John 12, 23 through 25 is where Jesus alludes to this answer of the big question. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's another way of saying it's time for me to die, it's time for me to go to the cross. The cross was Jesus' coronation moment in the Gospel of John. That's what he wants us to see. Verse 24, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So I grew up on a Kansas farm, and I am a wheat farmer by childhood. Um, And I have a a jar of wheat here. I don't know how many of you who have grown up only in the metropolis of Denver have ever seen a jar of wheat, but here it is. Um, And the thing about this wheat is that it is currently dead, and its life-giving potential is as of yet untapped. See, when you harvest wheat, when you see those golden fields out there in in Kansas, the glorious land of Kansas, um, that wheat is dead. You have to harvest it when it's dead and dry. Otherwise it won't be preserved in this manner. In fact, it will, uh, if, if you harvest it when it's green and, and alive and wet, it will rot. It will not stay like this, and you can't ever plant it again. Um, I wish that I could pass this around to each one of you, but again, COVID and uh, also Rebecca would probably yell at me if I just threw it out like wedding seed, um, so I'm not going to do that. But uh, it's really fun to play in. Like, we used to get in the bin and just like stomp around in it and almost get buried in it, so that, that was always a lot of fun. So here's what Jesus does with his wheat illustration. He's equating himself with a kernel of wheat. It's so small I can hardly grab it end to end. This kernel of wheat is what he is equating himself to. In this current state, it's not really good for anything. You can grind it in the flour, sure, make some bread. But for this to be truly life-giving, it has to be buried. It has to be put in the ground. Jesus, likewise, has to be put in the ground so that his death can bring about a harvest that is beyond measure, is beyond counting. And we ourselves also have to participate in that burial. So the question remains, how does our life prosper 
through Jesus's death. Because he gives us this wheat metaphor, and it's really cool. It's a good illustration, right? We can understand, yeah, Jesus has to be buried and then raised to new life. But what really happened? Because something did happen when he was buried, when he died, that is quantifiable. We can, we can understand it. We can rationalize with it, and we're going to discover what that is. So, two things. First of all, geolo- uh, geologically, theologically speaking, I mean, Jesus was buried, but no. Theologically speaking, Jesus took the sins of the entire world because Jesus paid the price of death on our behalf. Now, a little rational proof for us. It is well documented in Scripture that Jesus is God's Son, and he did not sin during his life. And yet it's also well documented that death is the result of sin. And yet, Jesus was on his way to die. So here's this proof, this logical, mathematical, argumentative, whatever thing that I just talked about. If you die, you have to have sinned. You have to have to sin if you die. Jesus did not have sin, but he died. So what happened? Why did Jesus die? What did this do? So I already gave you one answer, that Jesus took on the sins of the entire world, and because he had that sin, that meant that he could die. And that is one of the main gospels, um, types of the gospel that we share. Jesus died for your sins. That's logically how that works. But there's another one, and this is going to scratch deeper into the gospel. In the Bible, Satan is represented, or the, the evil of the world is represented by Satan and evil and death, um, the Satan, the, the accuser, all these kind of things. He has a bunch of minions that go around having their fingers in little things and trying to trouble and trying to destroy God's plan. So when Satan realized that Jesus, God's son, showed up on earth, he got together with his boys and he said, okay, so we need to stop this. Whatever God's doing, we need to try and stop it. And he was like, what if we kill him? If we can kill God's son, we win. So let's do that. And so he started working behind the scenes and he manipulated the leaders of Israel into wanting to kill him and all these other things he orchestrated so that Jesus would die. But that was Jesus' plan all along. What Satan did not know was that in the moment that he killed Jesus, he spent all of his power Every ounce of strength that he had over the world in sin and death that he controlled, he spent to kill the Son of God. And in doing so, Jesus broke the power that sin and death have over you and me. Amen? Amen. Therefore, if anyone is a new creation in Christ Jesus, the power of sin and death have no control over you or your life. So if you're a Christian, supposedly, sin has no power in your life. I'd imagine if I would ask each one of you, you would say, okay, maybe I agree with that, I see what you're getting at, but I don't experience that. I for sure have some struggles in some of my relationships with friends, family, work, whatever it is. Maybe even you're struggling with, there's some lagging sin, some thorn in your side, as Paul puts it, that you just can't get rid of. It's always with you, it's always around, you just can't get over that hurdle. 
So what are we to do? Why isn't our life hunky-dory if the power of sin and death doesn't have hold over us anymore? And the reality is that I think the church in America in general doesn't have a great understanding of the Holy Spirit because this is the power that lives inside someone who professes faith in Jesus. Because the power of the Holy Spirit gives us the same power that Jesus had in the grave when he broke Satan's power. And so what we hear, instead of, um, instead of a lot of churches in America holding us to, a, to accountability and obedience by saying, stop sinning, you, you can't sin anymore, um, what we hear is kind of a watered-down version of what it looks like to be obedient, where someone will say, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter if you keep sinning, God still loves you, and he, and he loves everybody, so that's great, you should worship him. But the thing is, Christians are called to a high level of accountability. Once we accept that power into our lives and we step onto the rock that is Jesus, that power is given to us to change and transform our lives into Jesus, into his image. Now, please don't hear me talking about legalism, because legalism is when you think you have to obey in order to earn salvation. The Bible is the other way around. God offers his unconditional love to everyone. He does offer his unconditional love to everyone. And if you accept that and profess your faith in Jesus and step into relationship with him, then you are called to a high level of accountability. Because what results in your life is a transformation, something that's different about you. Your relationships would hopefully improve, at least on your end, or you stop worrying about certain things, or your goals in your life change. So how does your life How does this affect your life right now in this moment? And I'll talk about fear. Fear is a tool of Satan. It's a tool of that power of sin and death. And fear, if you give into it, can control your life in a way that sin and death does, and it's not controlling your life in a way that the power of the Holy Spirit does. So a funny example, I hate spiders. Um, I don't like them. If I know that there's a place where a spider's going to be, I avoid that area. In fact, one time I was sitting playing video games, and I think Karina was next to me, and a spider, like the tiniest spider, just started spinning a web from the roof or from the ceiling and came down, and I saw it out of the corner of my eye, and that was like the worst. I was like, Karina, you got to get it. It was the tiniest thing, microscopic. But, and then I was afraid to sit in that spot because spiders are coming out of the ceiling. Okay. If, uh, like, basement showers and, and basement storage rooms, like spiders like hang out in corners and areas, I avoid them, or I wear shoes when I go into the storage area. So that fear controls my life. I can't sit here. I don't want to go into this room because there's a spider there. So that controls my life to a certain extent. I kill the crickets, by the way, in our relationship. They're too crunchy for Krina. They just, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> So more serious example, parents, and this comes from my experience as a teacher, um, often parents, and I understand this to a certain extent because I have a three and a half month old daughter, um, there's a natural fear that parents have that we want to preserve the lives of our children, and rightly so, but sometimes that can go a little far. And sometimes we feel like we have to protect them from any physical harm or from any um, emotional damage. And again, to a certain extent, that's appropriate. But as a teacher, I see this taken way too far. 
you're always concerned about your students' grades, and rightfully so. But sometimes I'd get an angry email. Now, I teach choir. Remember that. I'd get an angry email. Why does my student have a B in choir? I thought choir was supposed to be an easy class. What I want to say is, yeah, it is an easy class, so why don't you go and ask them why they don't have a good grade in my class? I always documented it well. They were misbehaving in class. You know, they don't sing. They just clamp their mouth shut, whatever. But we don't send those angry emails. We, we sleep on it and, and come up with a better, a better email to write back. That's more professional. So when you, when you do that, when you extend that bubble of protection to a place like grades or trying to protect them from emotional hurt, eventually they're going to fly the coop and they're going to experience the very things that you're trying to protect them from. It'd be much better if they experienced those while you were in, while they were in your house and you could coach them through that and help them through that. Because when you give into this fear and let it control your actions and control your life, that's not what the power of Jesus has for us. Instead, we need to, to die to that fear, give it over to him, and live in the power of his Holy Spirit for his kingdom. So what does the death of Jesus accomplish for you and for me. The Gospel of John gave us that answer before Jesus died on the cross. It's only through Jesus' death that our life can prosper. Life prospers through Jesus because he took the power of sin and death into the grave, into the ground where he was buried like the wheat, and he broke that power. And that same power is available to you and me to live in an amazing relationship with God and for his kingdom. And this is why faith in Jesus can be so transformative. And I've seen it over and over again with new disciples in Christ. They look back on their past and they're like, how, what was I doing? I was like, it, I wasn't even alive, but now I'm living out of this new faith in Jesus and I'm so thankful, everything's amazing. I don't worry about these things anymore. Because your sins are forgiven, Christ took them into, his self, into himself and they're taken away and you're given the power to stop sinning and the power of the Holy Spirit and live for Jesus. This is available to everyone, church, not only those who are in Christ already, but it's just readily available if you don't believe in Christ. And this can change your life and transform who you are. The fact is that Jesus has done all the work. He's done all the work by giving us access to the Holy Spirit, but we have to work very hard to choose to use that power in a transformative way for us and for others. Jesus became our king on the cross when he defeated sin and death. If you struggle on your own power to live in a certain way, it's likely you're going to be enslaved. But surrendering to the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit will make you empowered to defeat this. And empowerment means that you are set free from that slavery to a life for Jesus Christ and eternal life. And that eternal life doesn't just happen some future far-off place in heaven where we're finally experiencing the fullness of God in his presence. My friends, this happens right now. Right now. And it can change you, and it can change me in an instant. Let's pray.